According to the World Bank, Mexico is Latin America's second largest economy and one of the world's top 15. That's mainly driven by its oil sector, remittances from the United States, exports, agriculture, mining, tourism and manufacturing. But with a population of nearly 130 million, the country struggles to deal with inequality. The wealthiest 10% of Mexicans control nearly half of the country's total income, while the poorest 10% have access to less than 2% of it. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, reports that economic disparity in Mexico's regions is wider than in any other of its members. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador came to power promising to turn that around. But Mexico's poverty rate had grown to nearly 44%. With a general election next year, could he fail to fulfill his promises before leaving office? Mexico's Deputy Finance Minister, Gabriel Yorion Gonzalez, talks to Al Jazeera. Deputy Finance Minister, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thanks, Ian. Mexico is one of the world's top 15 economies. It's the second in Latin America. What does Mexico see as its role in the world? You know, uh, yes, as we're part of the of the G20 of the G20 economies, uh, we do think that we have an important role in terms of uh, uh, influence in the in the region of Latin America, but also uh, in terms of trade. We're most of, we are one of the most open economies in the world. We have around 15 free trade agreements around the world. And also we have access to, uh, to the largest market in, in, in the world, which is uh, United States, Canada, and, and Mexico. So the North American region is one, uh, is one region that has a lot of prosperity, that is growing, uh, and also that is changing. And, and we do think, we do want to be part of that, of that transformation in, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Mexico's economy, because one of the, the striking things about the economy is the, the influence, for example, that drug cartels and, uh, have within the economy, the level of corruption. Mexico is obviously not the only country in the world that has corruption, but nevertheless, it is significant. How difficult does that make it to plan a long-term fiscal strategy for Mexico? You know, these are uh, long-lasting problems in, in Mexico. For, for, for the last decades, uh, they have been present in, in our society and also in our economy. Uh, the present administration, President López Obrador, is, is actually trying to address both things. Uh, actually, one part of, the, of his campaign commitments is to fight against corruption. Um, and there has been present, this presents several challenges because when corruption is present in an economy, you know, you get inefficiencies in the, for example, on the expenditure side when you are implementing your budget. Uh, but also it has an impact not only on the cost for the firms or enterprises, but also it is reflected potentially uh, in, the, in the welfare of the people. Uh, so it is important for the Mexican government to continue uh, fighting corruption, to reduce corruption. But I guess to the extent that we are able and successful reducing corruption, we will be able also to have more, uh, as we call it, ma margin of maneuver in managing our, our public finances. And our public finances will be strengthened. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why in, the f in, the, in these last five years, uh, we have been able to uh, address or to achieve several uh, infrastructure projects. 
because we have been reducing uh, the cost of corruption in the public in the public budget. President López Obrador, as you say, has made it a key part of his administration that he's going to stamp out corruption. Nevertheless, it's endemic throughout society. It's there's corruption in paying, uh, trying to avoid seeing parking tickets all the way up to allegations of corruption when it comes to construction projects. Even members of uh, the president's own family have been involved in allegations of corruption. That rather gives the impression that the administration's efforts to try to stamp out corruption aren't really working. No, I, I, I do think it's working because, you know, um, the president is trying to lead by example. So any case of corruption that has been happening during this administration has been investigated. And, and some of them, of those participants that have gone through, the, through all the legal processes, uh, according to Mexican law, they had been, um, well, they had been judged or, 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 or face any, any, some kind of this uh, legal actions or legal consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. There have been allegations that, that um, the prosecutors have been somewhat selective in the cases that they've been, they've been um, addressing when it comes to, to corruption. Is there a tightening of the legal system that Mexico needs to look at as well in order to be able to um, achieve what the president is hoping to achieve? You know, Mexico has an, uh, an institutional setting that was uh, practically designed long time ago. Uh, though we do have uh, in place check and balances, maybe this is a very good opportunity to, to rethink and to debate what is the best way we can uh, well build not only our society but also the check and, and balances uh, among the, the, the three powers in Mexico, no? Congress, the, judici the judicial courts, and also the executive, the, sec the executive branch. Um, I guess this is an agenda that needs to be more developed in Mexico. Uh, probably this administration, which, which is already getting close to the end of, the, of, of the, its period, probably this will be an agenda that needs to be addressed either by the end of the administration or for the next administration. But I guess there might be this a good time for this might be a good time for to addressing or to debate publicly what is the type or the kind of uh, check and balances that we would like to have in Mexico. You were talking earlier about the big projects that the government is uh, taking on board. One of those, of course, is the Tren Maya. This is the, the plan to link several tourist resorts and, uh, and other facilities. Um, it is very significant. It is also extremely controversial. It's only one of several very large projects that the government has taken on and has set very tight deadlines for these to be completed. I believe we're facing elections fairly soon. There is a possibility that the president may be out of office by the time these things come to pass. Has the government taken on too much? Is it, should it be focusing on projects of this size rather than focusing perhaps on more social issues? No, we're focusing on both. I mean, during this administration, we were able to increase our, our, our public spending in, in, in the social protection network. Now, um, these large infrastructure projects have been mostly devoted to southern Mexico. You know, southern Mexico is, uh, is not growing at the same path as the rest of the country, and it's not connected in terms of trade or, or the economy. No, actually, uh, it is a region that, is my, that it might be decrease, decreasing for the last decades. Uh, uh, and also, uh, it is diverging from the rest of the country. Uh, but Mexico has proven to be very successful when we focalize infrastructure or infrastructure investments in one specific region. I mean, if I was going to tell you that in the 50s or 60s, there is going to be a large touristic resort in Quintana Roo, which is Cancun now, 
I mean, probably you wouldn't believe me. Uh, so we had been very successful doing that because we did that also in the north, in northern Mexico, where, where we develop uh, industrial parks, uh, manufacturing parks, also in the in the central corridor of Mexico. You know, these states that are uh, in the Bajío, as we call it, um, that are more devoted for uh, logistic e-commerce. And now we want to focus on southern Mexico. And in southern Mexico, there are uh, three uh, flagship projects. One is the Tren Maya. Uh, the Tren Maya have a specific impact, or we're seeking to have a, we're expecting that the project will have a specific uh, impact on, uh, not only on tourism, but to unlock all the tourists, tourism or tourists that are, are traveling to Cancun. Uh, for example, each year, 25 million uh, tourists arrive to Cancun, but they stay in Cancun. Uh, with the Maya Corridor, they will be able to, to not only to spend on the touristic resources, but also to spend on the, on the peninsula of Yucatan, which is important in terms of development. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, China, I believe, has carried out a, a similar project uh, over uh, a longer period of time as far as the train line is concerned. And it took several years, and the president is determined that it's going to happen in a year. He's, he's told the army engineers that they have to complete it within that time. Given the amount that the administration has taken on, is there a risk, do you think, to the economy that is, in order to try to achieve those goals that there is a risk that it will be overspent and over budget in order to try to hit that mark? You know, these kind of projects that take too long uh, uh, eventually have an impact on, on their budget. Uh, and during this administration, we faced several external shocks. The first one was COVID, uh, COVID-19 in 2020, the COVID-19 crisis. And, and the second was, was the inflation shock. Most of the inflation that we're experiencing in Mexico comes from abroad. Uh, but most of it is related to, to, uh, to some of the products that we use to build uh, all these projects. Uh, so yes, there will, be some, there will be an impact, but it's manageable. Uh, it's, it's not affecting the budget and it's not creating any fiscal imbalances uh, or, or, or affecting our fiscal performance. You know, our, fiscal, our, fiscal, our public finances are solid, uh, credit ratings are stabilized, our deficit is controlled and our public debt is also stabilized because it was increasing for a long time. Now we have managed to stabilize it and to keep it constant. So yes, we are speeding up these investments, but it's not uh, affecting our public balances. Mm -hmm. If there is uh, such stability within the economy, why did the president feel it necessary to put some of these projects under a national security um, information ban, which makes it much more difficult to get information about how much money is being spent and who it's going to? I, I, I think the strategy is more focused on trying to avoid any strategy that might come from, from some political parties that are against the project or that want to stop the project. Uh, and that's pro probably the strategy that some of the lawyers in government are trying to follow up is to, uh, to ring fence these projects in this, uh, in this legal framework. But the reports are there. Uh, we're reporting everything, all expenditures, uh, and, and we are also responsible to report to Congress and to the people. I want to ask you about the, um, the differential that there is between the north and the south within Mexico. Yeah. You refer to it yourself with regard to the industrial area that's in, that's in the north. Now, there was the recent announcement, of course, that Tesla is going to be building a very large factory in, in Monterrey. Um, the, the president and his administration is obviously pleased about this because it will give, create jobs, they say, for many people in, uh, in and around the Monterrey region. 
But I want to ask you about the fiscal and the, the financial element of this. If I understand it correctly, um, Tesla's moving in and it's paying no tax, it's paying no duty. If the cars are sold, they're going to be sold probably in North America and the tax for the cars is going to be spent, is going to be gained in, in North America. Apart from the jobs that will go to individuals, it is difficult to see what additional benefits there would be to people in and around this factory because again the corporations many of the corporations that move into northern Mexico to take advantage of the circumstances there aren't that keen on unionization so we're talking about a workforce that will predominantly have very little representation and they'll get little else other than a job yeah not you know um Inside or, or as part of the of the UMCA agreement, uh, there are specific commitments about uh, unions and, and salaries, uh, and this is part of the negotiations that uh, we agree the three countries in, in the newest in the update of this uh, of the free, free trade agreement. But the Tesla factory didn't actually ask for fiscal uh, incentives. You know. Um, they had been taking decisions not based on how much uh, fiscal incentives we can provide. Uh, they are taking decisions that are more related to geography, access to United States market, to access to a labor market or qualified labor market, and we have one. We are practically one of the uh, most uh, one of the countries that uh, have more engineers uh, each year in, in graduating from our universities. Uh, the Monterrey region has access to energy, access to the to customs, uh, so and also Tesla expressed the interest of taking benefit of the network that we have uh, in terms of free trade agreements. We have 15 free, free trade, 14, 15 trade agreements uh, that they would like to take benefit of, and and maybe just uh, to use the Tesla example because probably is the most popular one. And, but there are several announcements that were made. For to relocate in to, for firms to relocate in Mexico, but Tesla, you know, kind of reflects the nearshoring dynamics that we are experiencing today. Tesla wants to keep access to the Asian market, but also doesn't want to get uh, or to lose to lose market uh, access market for you to United States. Mexico is very close to Europe, it's close to United States, and it's close to Latin America, and that's the advantages that they are they have identified. And and if that's going to reflect the nearshoring dynamics. Probably we wouldn't be talking about nearshoring because because firms would like to keep access to both markets or to all these markets. So we might be we should maybe talk we might be talking about the fragmentation of the markets, and this means that some of the firms will need to expand investments. But the decisions weren't driven by the by the by by uh, fiscal incentives. Now. Tesla obviously wants, of course, once they are uh, located in Monterrey, Nuevo León, they will, uh, the, legal, the legal framework or the fiscal framework, is the fiscal structure that we have in place, they, they will apply for them. They, it will apply to them. Uh, now, yes, there are some fiscal incentives that are being provided by the United States. Uh, and those fiscal incentives, we do think that's going to have positive impact, not only on the United States, but on the North American region. And that's part of actually, actually of the approach that we have uh, uh, agreed between the three nations. Now, we do have some challenges in terms of the exporting industries that we have in Mexico because, yes, uh, to the extent that they sell abroad, uh, they can't deduct, uh, for example, the VAT. 
and that and that creates uh, like a compensations in the in the sector, especially on the automotive or uh, or the transport section. But that's already in our fiscal structure, so we didn't we haven't changed that, and we're not providing any any either uh, fiscal incentives. Let me just finish saying that we do want to provide fiscal incentives for nearshoring. We will be focalizing our fiscal incentives in the 10th industrial park that we want to develop in the Istmo de Tehuantepec corridor. And also we will provide fiscal incentives in the, in the parks that we want to develop in Sonora for the solar panels and the lithium battery supply chain that we want to relocate there. But they will be very focalized and they will be focalized in, in, in territory and they will, focal, will be focalized on the, on the sectors that we have agreed with the United States, which is microchips, transport, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, electronics, and aerospatial. No? Uh, one of the, um, the elements that seems to make up the, uh, the, the administration is a focus on uh, centralizing control. When you mentioned uh, lithium uh, extraction, for example, and uh, if I understand it correctly, the, the president is anxious that it should be a government body that should be in charge of extracting that. That's only one example. There are other government bodies he wants to see in charge of other parts. Is there a risk that by centralizing so much that there is an element of competition that is lost and as a result the economy becomes distorted slightly because there is so much government control? Uh, we, don't, we don't believe that if we do it in, uh, in, in the right way. And, and we do think we are doing it in the, in the right way. The president took a decision that uh, the lithium stock that we might have in, in Sonora uh, shouldn't be followed the same path that historically Mexico followed in terms of oil, for example. Oil, currently Mexico extracts oil. We sell the oil, we export the oil, and we are importing gasoline. Uh, so the, the, the added value is not created in our, in our territory, and we don't want the same to happen with lithium. Uh, so in Mexico, the, the, the legal framework in Mexico, practically everything that is in, in the soil belongs to the state. Uh, and the president took the decision that lithium should belong to the state as the, as the current law uh, mandates. But what he's asking or requesting from the private sector is to uh, build partnerships. So we can, we can take advantage of the, of the natural resources and we would process the lithium batteries in Mexico. So we capture the added value in our territory uh, and we won't replicate the, 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 the history that we all know about oil. Mm -hmm. You said earlier on towards the start of our conversation that the administration was working on big projects and managing its social obligations uh, at the same time. Yet, if I understand it correctly, the poverty rate in Mexico grew to nearly 44% at the end of last year and it's actually gone up since 2018 when uh, President López Obrador uh, came into power. Is the government failing to hit its targets? I don't think it's failing, actually, to be, uh, and, and I want to be really honest on this because, you know, all the country had an, an important impact, which was COVID-19. Uh, if we see or if we assess uh, poverty around, not in a, around the world, but specifically on Latin America, which remains to be one of the most un, unequal regions in the world, uh, probably there's going to be some impact on the social indicators that we follow, such as poverty. Uh, so for, I mean, I would like to put it in context because when you have such a, a shock such as COVID, uh, it is very difficult to disentangle 
how much is your, your social policy mitigating and how much uh, it is explained by the impact of COVID, you know, you know? And after COVID, then we have an international shock or an external shock that comes from, from inflation. So now the cost of living has been increased. And it's not because of the social policies, it's because you know, we have a pandemic in 2020. I would like to say that um, if we wouldn't invest in 2019 in increasing or the social protection network, probably the effect of COVID will be larger right now. Uh, there are several social indicators that have been improving. For example, uh, labor poverty, which is one of our measures of poverty, has been decreasing. We will have the public, uh, the public results uh, on the following months. Uh, and I, and I really, really think that expanding the social protection network was key to, to, to mitigate those, all these impacts that we received between 2020 and 2021, 2022. So right now, the Mexican economy is recovering, is growing at 3%. Inflation is, being decre is decreasing right now. And uh, we do think that the, it is a better future from now on if we don't experience another pandemic or another war. But I would like to put the con in context all the situation that happened during the administration because you know, uh, this is the same problem in, in other countries in Latin America. Uh, and actually, when we go to, this, uh, to the annual meetings, you know, you know the fund, the IMF meetings in, in Washington, the discussion is uh, that we, as a, uh, globally, we have a setback in all these social indicators, and that's part of the cost of the pandemics, not only on the short term, but also on medium and long term that is related with human capital and education and health. So uh, I, I guess uh, not only Mexico, the whole, uh, the whole region, the whole world needs to continue working, fighting poverty. Mexico does not only experience one social problem, which is poverty. Uh, we have several social gaps that we need to be addressed, and that's one of the reasons we're talking about the universality of the social programs, because we need to address several of, of them. Uh, what I would like to put in context, because uh, it's not something that it belongs to the social policy, and I wouldn't dare to say that uh, we're failing on that. I, I think the, the impact will be greater if we wouldn't build this social network protection that we have. No? Mm -hmm. Just briefly, looking back over the life of the administration so far, is there anything you would have done differently? Well, uh, you know, five years, uh, it gives you a lot to think, no? And, and there are several uh, lessons learned. We had been trying to build several initiatives and to keep our public finances in check. And I think we did really well. You know, Mexico right now is identified as, as one of the um, best performing countries in terms of economic, of economic, uh, economic activity, inflation, um, and actually I would like to say quality. But I guess there are some other uh, reforms that we should, uh, should address. No? For example, in, in the last uh, weeks, we presented a reform to simplify the processes for firms to get access to the stock exchange market, for, uh, to the stock market, uh, to, f to promote more IPOs. Um, and we do think that our financial sector needs to be deepened and needs to be strengthened. And, and one thing that we would like to make different probably is that, uh, one lesson learned is that probably should be more, more ambitious in trying to, to induce more dynamic in our financial sector because it's key for growth. It's key because we did a great reform in terms of, pension ref in, in terms of uh, pensions. 
We are increasing the savings in the system from 14% of GDP to 40% of GDP. So there will be a, a lot of money in the pension funds, which are very uh, active institutional investors. They are mobilized resources for growth. Um, and we need to have uh, dynamic markets for that. And I guess that's one of the opportunities, uh, 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 not only the challenges, but the opportunities that we might have to the future. Um, now, I think, I think there are several um, other topics, for example, uh, to the extent that we are able to keep our public finances in check, that also gives us a lot of a space to think about the, or, or the, tax, the tax structure that we would like to have. And we are not in a rush to equilibrate our fiscal aggregates or our fiscal balances. And that means that we, are able, we, we will have time to think if we would like to achieve more progressivity, for example, in our tax structure. Not trying to, to equilibrate the balances, but just to have an impact on, on society, on growth, to have a more equitable society, uh, uh, economy as well. So I think this is our, the areas of opportunity for the next administration. This administration was, we didn't have the time now, but maybe on the next administration we, uh, we will. No? Deputy Finance Minister Gabriel Jorio Gonzalez, thank you very much indeed. No, thanks to you and happy to be here. Thank you very much.